Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to new bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Welcome back to Bibliophiles, everyone. Glad to be with you once again. I'm Adam Andrews, joined by the rest of the Center for Lit crew, including my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Hey. My daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. And my daughter, Megan. Hi. Good to be with you guys. Let's dive right in. What is on the table for today? It's not a what are we reading episode. It's not a lit period episode. This is just straight bibliophiles where we're talking about ideas related to literature, great books, and the like. And I think the idea we have on tap for today uh, was brought to us by Ian. So Ian, I'm just going to turn it over to you and ask you what in the world we should discuss. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Well, I was poking around on the interwebs, just sort of in my travels, and I came across an article in The Atlantic, um, and it was on the topic of literature, and I generally stop and read an Atlantic article on the topic of literature because there's... You do? Yeah. That you do that regularly? Yeah. Well, that was very cynical. Did you hear that? Well, Did you hear the cynical undertone there? What are you trying to say? Trying to say? You do to art and culture, you. really? You? It's no, so funny. It's... You work for a company that's exclusively involved with literature and arts and culture. You read? I'm shocked. No, it's just the thing I didn't know. I didn't know that about you. She sees you sitting around the house, <laughs> too. Well, when I look over your shoulder, it's usually like a fantasy football. <laughs> Thinking around it. Word. What is wrong with that? <laughs> okay, Ian, you got to climb a hill now. I'm sorry. I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Good now. luck. There's no, there's no hill to climb. No, it's a hole that you've got to dig yourself out of. Someone told me it was my turn to host an episode. And so I am. I know, but <laughs> we, like, we just got to pile on now. <laughs> So what of this so Atlantic it, uh, article? When Ian? I was reading the Atlantic, uh, which I do regularly, um, <laughs> I found an interesting article. Um, the The author of the art it's sort of it's sort of a, an article slash interview. The author of the article is Joe Fassler, who um, who presents sort of a question about a story that we all love and have, have kicked around a lot here at Center for Lit, The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. Mm-hmm. And he presents that question to another author by the name of, and I, I, I am not going to be able to pronounce this correctly because it's, it's sort of a strange name, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, her name is Tia Obrecht. Uh, that would be my best guess as to how to pronounce her name. That's believable. Yeah. Thank you. I thought so. Yeah. Um, but uh, Ms. Obrecht is a... Is, a novelist, and she sort of takes on the question that he asks about the old man in the sea and discusses the impact of that particular Hemingway story on her own work as a novelist. And I, I found her thoughts really interesting. Um, I don't, compelling might be a strong word. Um, I wasn't really sure when I got done reading the article what to think about it, and I thought, oh, we should bring this up in Bibliophiles. Well, that's and what Bibliophiles is for. What to think about it. Yeah, exactly. And then maybe the listeners would enjoy hearing us uh, kick around these ideas as well. So with that, I'd like to give you just a little bit of a summary on the question itself and how um, our author for the day answers it. And maybe we can we can have some thoughts about it as we go along. Uh, Fassler brings up 
a particular image from the old man in the sea, which isn't one that I actually remembered. I had to go back and double check and make sure it was even there. Not that I distrusted the man, but you understand. I didn't really remember it. And so I went back and I looked it up and it is indeed there. It's the lion motif at a couple different points in the story. Um, Santiago, our, our main character, the old man, the fisherman himself, has this memory of being a young sailor and seeing in off the coast of Africa, seeing a bunch of lions running down the beach. Right. And it's sort of a, of a strange interjection into the story that doesn't really match it in tone or substance. Hmm. So Fassler writes, um, Hemingway boils his main... And this is basically him summarizing Obrecht's argument. Hemingway boils his main character's entire history down to one inscrutable image. Goes on to say, she discusses how the book's radical closing gesture elevates memory above all other aspects of the human experience as the last thing left when one's strength, pride, and reputation have faded. Obrecht calls the image of the lion sprinting down the beach, um, quote, a moment of interiority. Not sure that's a real word there, Tia. (laughs) A, A moment of interiority that helps explain one of the qualities she looks for in fiction. She argues that since much of the action of this little novella, The Old Man in the Sea, draws readers' attention to the physical struggle between Santiago and the fish. Right. The moment during which he falls asleep with the fish still on his line and dreams that he is still a young man watching these lions sprinting down a beach in Africa is sort of jarring and incongruous, if beautiful. Now, after the scene, of course, all you guys and the rest of our readers will remember the end of Santiago's saga. He drags the shark-ravened course of his prize marlin to shore and collapses from exhaustion and defeat, and several tourists, seeing the giant tail fin of this marlin, inquire about the catch. And one of the other fishermen tries to explain and can't really do it. The tourists think that the tail belongs to a shark at the end of the day. And Hemingway leaves us with the following line. Up the road in his shack, the old man was sleeping again. He was still sleeping on his face, and the boy was sitting by him watching him. The old man was dreaming about the lions. Mm -hmm. This is sort of where the story ends. So... Obrecht's closing comments posit a sort of interpretation of this idea that struck me as odd, as I mentioned. And I want to read what I think are some of her more important uh, comments and then sort of open the floor and we can kick it around together. Okay, okay cool. Sounds good. So she says, the book ends there. From a craft perspective, what strikes me most is the boldness of this kind of perspective shift so late in the game when your reader has been accustomed to one lens for so long. There's tremendous risk of creating a distancing effect. And yet somehow Hemingway manages to make the whole thing much more intimate because he shows you in the the briefest of maneuvers the whole scope of how humanity works. By the final lines, Santiago's epic battle is already being misconstrued and misunderstood. And so as the novella ends, you sense that Santiago's story doesn't have much of a future. It's going to dissolve with the tide. It's already being carried out to sea. That's the fate of all life and the fate of all stories. The truth of what really happened out there in the Gulf Stream belongs only to us, the readers, because we watched the old man struggle with his fish. But in the end, even our memories don't seem to matter. We're left with an image that seems to transcend that epic battle, the lions on the beach, which Santiago dreams of as the story closes. Somehow, these lions he glimpsed as a boy capture the essence of his humanity. They remain, even when everything else has been eroded. Even the life-changing brutality of his experience at sea can't change that. By ending on that image, Hemingway suggests that what matters most is the preservation of a person's sense of self, 
which only that person can know in life and which a reader can know through the intimacy of fiction. To a degree, you get the whole story of the battle with the Marlin in order to be able to come back to this image. It's an utterly inactive moment. Santiago is asleep after all, and yet it reveals what his soul is all about. The lions are the door to his personhood. So, what do we think of this idea? Do we agree? Do we disagree? Could you like rephrase it? What do you think that she's saying? I think what she's saying is a couple of things. First of all, I think she's saying memory is inconsistent and we have no control over our own memories of ourselves. And, and maybe even that memory is what defines our self-image and our own perspectives, whether we want that to be true or not. In other words, Santiago can't help. But remember the, the lions. lions. Yeah. Hmm. It's his primary memory. When he falls asleep, that's what he sees and he can't help it. And I think what she is suggesting is that it's also his primary image of himself. And it's what remains after his epic battle. In other words, his will isn't involved in this self-image thing. He actually doesn't have the option of redefining himself or his personhood by this battle with the Marlin. In the same way that you can't choose what you remember? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah. You can't choose what you remember. And so you also can't choose yourself. And maybe I'm giving her... Maybe I'm giving her a little bit too much credit, but I think she seems to say that this is true of Santiago and true of her own life and true of the human experience, that memory comes along and defines us in ways that are intangible and irrevocable. And incongruous. Yeah. I mean, is that, right. is that, would that be her explanation of why the, the lions seem to have nothing whatever to do with marlins, nothing whatever to mm-hmm. do with fishing? That yes. they're a completely separate image because they sprung up uh, due to some cause that Santiago has no control over. And that sort of underscores this idea. Right. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think what she would say furthermore is that the genius of Hemingway is not in articulating some beautiful thematic truth in the story, but is instead in simply creating intimacy between the reader and the character. And the fact that we can see that about Santiago is why literature exists and what fiction is for. So he's, he's, she's basically saying that this is an element of characterization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And that's that's the, major, the major part of the lines. That's what mm-hmm. I got. And I also got the idea that, that it's a specific move in the process of characterization to show a character to the reader as someone who's possessed of this incongruous, looks like it's not crafted. It looks... It looks um, contingent, completely contingent mm-hmm. on forces we don't know. And that gives it an air of authenticity because if we look at our own memories, we realize that we don't really have control over what sticks. I mean, I think everybody probably has that experience, can identify with that, right? When I was four years old, my father dropped a plate on the kitchen floor and I've never forgotten it. And it had nothing right. to do with anything. And it's just one of those things that stuck. And that gives my interior reality some authenticity maybe that's what she's talking about i do have a question though do you think that she's going so far as to say that the lions don't have any significance thematically at all because having taught that book recently to a group of 12th graders there is actually um there are arguments to be made many arguments to be made that the lions are thematically significant that it's some kind of prowling image some external force that Santiago is aware of that's just as antagonistic as all the other forces of nature that he's encountering in the story. And the fact that he goes to sleep dreaming of them and he wakes up and it's sharks, not lions, but still an antagonistic natural force that he's beating against kind of hopelessly 
it is thematically relevant if you think about lions as predators that except, way. Except, but, can I just say, um, I course. looked up a couple, of, there are three places in the actual story where these come up, the lines come up at the beginning, and then this place in the middle that I want to just read that's about two sentences long in this mm-hmm. place at the end. And in the middle, it begins, there are three paragraphs that address the context in which the lions occur. And it begins, he was asleep in a short time and he dreamt of Africa when he was a boy and the long golden beaches and the white beaches, so white they hurt your eyes and so on and so forth. He lived along that coast now every night and in his dreams he heard the surf roar and saw the native boats and so on and so forth. Okay, it's in this context that he dreams of these lions and he he says Mm -hmm. this, he no longer dreamt of storms, nor of women, nor of great occurrences, nor of great fish, nor fights nor contests of strength, nor of his wife. He only dreamt of places now and of the lions on the beach. They played like young cats in the dusk, and he loved them as he loved Mm. the boy. So this idea of it it being, maybe it is something larger than he is, something more powerful, but maybe not antagonistic. I was thinking, don't you think it's interesting that, I mean, the passages you describe they're playing the lions are playing mm-hmm. so there is something attractive about them and also mm-hmm. when i think of lion i didn't think of predator i thought dignity mm-hmm. oh interesting that hemingway is always on about grace under pressure mm-hmm. yes to tie it back to the article ian uh given what obrecht is arguing that at the end of the day his memory was reduced down to this one moment where maybe he felt in that moment dignified hmm. um, he was a boy, he was at the prime of life, everything looked hopeful, and here's this proud, dignified creature mm. on the beach. And that, yeah, maybe it says something. He couldn't choose it, which I think is what you want to talk about. But on the other hand, it seems to say something about his psyche that at the end of the day, that's what was left over in spite of the struggle, in spite of the defeat. And the fact that it's associated with his, yeah, I agree, Emily, something about this being associated with his childhood, with his youth, the the last line, um, he loved them as he loved the boy. The next sentence is he never dreamt about the boy. He loved Alliance as he loved the boy. He never dreamt about the boy. So there's something about this image from his own youth. And it's not so much that he's dreaming of youth, but it's the impact that this whatever the lions represented for him, the experience he had watching these lions, maybe it was um, something that called up in his heart or in his soul or in his imagination when he watched these lions that um, cemented or lodged itself into his memory that, that recurs now so that it's not um, lost youth, but maybe it's potentiality, some, some sort of hopefulness or um, some sort of wonder at something um, grander and larger than himself that he couldn't really understand. Are we talking about what the thematic significance of the lions might be and so operating on a different assumption than Obrecht is advancing in her article? And I'm, I'm asking this, Ian, of you as a, as a question. Is, is what she is saying that there, there isn't necessarily thematic significance other than to demonstrate that this character has an interior life and is a real, a real person? And are we sort of saying, well, it's got to have some th- thematic significance. What could it possibly be? Are we off the are we are we off the track that she's suggesting, Ian? No, I don't think so. I, I think, and it might be that the argument that she's making is weirdly um, of two minds because 
in the last paragraph of her comments, she says, there's a lot that's contentious about Hemingway and for good reason, but whatever issue you take with him, I think the old man in the sea is kind of unassailable, especially in its final moments. Hemingway presents a painful, unforgiving world, and yet in this last image, we're giving an enduring note of meaning. It suggests that a small kernel of eternal truth burns inside us all. That reality is so convincing on the page that it seems as though Santiago's life will keep on going, even though for us, the story must end there. Well, yeah, that's what, yeah, in spite of all of the horrors that he goes through, that grain of dignity remains. Right. Nothing, that isn't what's taken away from him. His wife is taken away as a memory. He doesn't dream about the boy. He doesn't dream about anything else. That is all stripped away. And yet the lions remain. Hmm. Well, that's certainly resonant with the other ideas in the story. I mean, it's the dignity of the fish that he talks long about and that inspires him as he hunts it and eventually kills it. And Mm -hmm. then after, as the sharks are devouring it, um, it's the dignity of the fish that causes him to grieve it and not really even what it would have brought at market value or his own dignity. But it's maybe I shouldn't have killed this fish. Look at what a waste. Because essentially the fish is a foil. The marlin is a foil for the old man in the story in a way that the lions, the lions aren't necessarily a foil. I I can't go as far as the author that you're talking about, Ian, in this article goes in Mm -hmm. saying that the lions are in some way um, characteristic of the old man. He, Mm -hmm. he feels some sort of oneness with them and that's why they lodged in his memory. And, but I, I can go with you, Emily, to to understand if she if what she means is what you're saying that the lions represent some sort of dignity and that dignity resonates with him i see that all over the novella uh, he's he, it might be his greatest good this kind of dignity and certainly i think it's one of the major themes in not only this hemingway story but in all of him hemingway's stories this concept of um in a world absent any kind of capital T truth, the best we can hope for is that we would have grace under pressure, that we would retain our dignity. Megan, maybe that's why it's also their dangerous image, that mm-hmm. they're, they are predatory. And it's like, it's intention, they're predatory and they're playing. So there's dignity in the face of horror violence. Right. Um, I mean, another short story that's that's wrapped up with Hemingway in my head is his um, a clean not a clean well-lighted place that's another one today is Friday is mm-hmm. what I'm thinking of his picture of the the night that Jesus dies it's a really short like four page short story and he's talking about Jesus and considering Hemingway is not coming at it from a Christian perspective but he's considering what's good about Christ and he says basically that Christ is enduring something horrible with grace. And that's, that's the greatest good. That's as good a man as you can be is one who grits his teeth and bears it. So that's his, that's his only offering of hope. Even in the Christian story of redemption, he doesn't look at the, at the, the resurrection later on. He just looks at the crucifixion and says, well, that was a good man because he endured. And that's Santiago here in the old man in the sea as well. His highest good, even when he goes to sleep in that last passage and dreams of the lions, he's just endured this most horrible defeat with grace. And then he dreams of the lions who are dignified, but still kind of dangerous. But also, um, they don't seem peaceful to me, that image at the end. But what, see, here's the thing though. And and I think the conversation we're having about what the lions might mean is a really good one. But Obrecht's point is a little bit broader than that. She's stepping out and it's a little bit more bird's eye because Mm -hmm. one of the other things she says is that um, 
Hemingway himself rejected the notion of any symbols at the heart of the old man in the sea. I noticed that line too. You know, yeah. Actually, I read that quote by, by Hemingway and I think she, um, she reiterates it too broadly. I want to hear this from you, but I want to finish the sentence first. Okay. So she says, he rejected the notion of any symbols at the heart of the old man in the sea. His attitude was more or less, the fish is a fish and the sea is the sea. What do you want from me? Yeah. Which is a very Hemingway thing to do and say. <laughs> but part of the magic of the lions is that they escape any kind of easy symbolic interpretation. They feel like the kind of image that might surface organically in a mind. And what she goes on to say is that that's the genius of Hemingway, is that he's capable of making his character feel organically like a person. Hmm. And the way that he does that is that we can't control memories and neither can Santiago. That's what I was trying to say earlier, that, that she's talking about this, the the emergence of the lions as something contingent and unexplainable, kind of like memories are in real life. And so it gives right. the character a note of verisimilitude that the lions are incongruous. That's, that's how she gets around the fact that she doesn't see any thematic interpretation for them. Right. Basically what she's saying is, no, 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 this work is a work of art because it accurately represents humanity. And the eternal truth that Hemingway is sussing out is the fact that we don't get to control these things rather than jumping into it and saying Hemingway does have a point here. And the point is that the lions mean this. Well, fair enough. It, you know, you can certainly say that, but I do think that's too broad a, a reading of Hemingway's response to his critics and to his readers who essentially were saying, um, Oh, well, all of those sharks that were attacking the fish um, are like the critics that have been attacking him as he's tried to write yeah. the next great oh, novel. Right? right. And his response is, Hey man, the fish are the fish, the sharks are the sharks. It's just a story, <laughs> man. What are you talking about? That's that's what he was responding to. Right. He, he certainly wasn't right. saying he never used symbolism in his literature because that right. would be patently absurd. Right. He absurd. was one of the greatest American novelists. And even in this story, I mean, Joe DiMaggio becomes a symbol of grace under pressure. Megan already mentioned that Jesus becomes a symbol of grace under pressure. There are symbols everywhere in this story as there are in most Hemingway stories. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I wouldn't want to remove the lions from the running um, in terms of any kind of thematic um, symbolic meaning <laughs> there. You know what I mean? I, th I think that maybe it could be both. Is there, is there well, any reason to say that no... it must be one and not the well, other? Well, yeah, that's the, la the last question I have is that now that we've sort of talked about these ideas, um, where do we come down on this? I mean, mm -hmm. if we were to answer the same question that Fassler asks Obrecht in the beginning, what do we do with the image of the lions? Is this recurring motif meaningful in some way? What would we even, what would we say? I, I have taught this Dad. story many times uh, at the high school level and fancy myself a moderate to observant reader <laughs> have thought about the issues of symbolism and thematic significance in Hemingway generally. And in the old man and sea in particular, and I will admit to being more or less stumped by the lions. And I've been asked by many thoughtful high school students, Mr. A, what are the lions for? And I usually come up with some sort of shifty way to say, I don't know. <laughs> well, and, so, and so just, just to let me finish this one thought, when I heard um, Obrecht's version of this, there, were, there was a part of it that resonated with me because it always feels a little bit to me like I'm forcing some sort of significance into the lions that is not obvious. Mm -hmm. And whatever else Hemingway is, He's not trying to obfuscate. He is the clearest, most direct writer in the American tradition, maybe. And so it's it doesn't seem Hemingway-esque to me for him to suddenly be obtuse, for him to suddenly be coming at something slantwise. And so when she said, what the lions are is an example of how the human mind works, and in particular when she said, when all else has faded, 
when all else has crumbled and fallen away, reputation and strength and everything else, your memories coming at you as, as contingently as they are is all you have left. That struck a Hemingway note for mm-hmm. me because to the degree that he is thematic, what he's always saying is when everything else is, has been stripped away through misfortune and capriciousness of nature and fate, you have your dignity. There's something left. Right. And the lions do seem to, because of their incongruousness, they do seem to represent what's left over when everything else is stripped away. That's the best thing yeah. I've heard about the lions, to be perfectly honest. I, I agree with that. And I would I would take it one step further. And this is where maybe I'm maybe I'm reading too much into Obrecht's comments. Um, and I don't know if there's a longer version of this interview somewhere or something along those lines. I'd be interested to read it because um, one of the things she's saying that I think is unassailably true is that our efforts to hold on to a particular memory and to make them as important as we feel in our guts, they should be like memories of ones, you know, the first time she, she mentions the first time she met her husband, for mm-hmm. example, right? I want this memory to be the lodestone of my interior identity. And that's not our choice to make. It just isn't sometimes. Um, yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I think you can actually take that and expand that idea into a comment about human nature that is really revealing and really potent which is to say, we don't actually have the tools to do what Hemingway is suggesting we do. And in trying to accurately represent humanity by including this weird incongruous detail, he sort of defeats his own point in some ways. How so? Because mm-hmm. we've got Santiago, who by the strength of his endurance of this difficulty is maintaining the only thing that he gets to claim, his dignity. And then he falls asleep and effectively forgets about it and remembers the lions instead, a detail which has nothing to do with anything. That's sort of what I See, that's what I disagree with. I don't agree that it has nothing to do with anything. I am with you on the whole idea of the lions being a memory. Okay, fair enough. It's a memory. But why did that memory lodge? Why did that memory captivate his imagination? And why is it recalled as significant moments when he's in the middle of struggle and defeat and disappointment and weariness and hopelessness? Yeah, there's the question. That's the question. That's That's what comes up. and And she argues Hemingway. Both of those people would say, no reason. That's just humanity. See, and I disagree with her. Me too. I think, honestly, that what Hemingway seems to be indicating is that the lions lodged because they are a symbol of um, carefree courage in the face of the natural landscape. Youth, Mm -hmm. in other words. Uh, Maybe, but remember, he doesn't dream of the youth. He dreams of the lions. There's something about those lions that he saw when he was a youth that captivated his mind and his heart. And um, maybe it was their dignity. Maybe it was their fearlessness. But all of those things rolled together, come back again and again in moments of um, need. It's the thing that Mm. his his imagination reaches for in those mm-hmm. moments. Yeah. And that seems to be a sustaining image for him in those moments. And it does resonate with the grace under pressure motif. Right. Right. Uh, that's a great point, Missy. I think, I think that yeah. that's where the, that really is where the question of the lions hinges. Is it, it, it Missy, is it your, your thematic reading of that, of it, or is it Obrecht's sort of meta structural reading of it. And I don't disagree with her that um, it does make him a more human character. It makes him a more believable character because of the mechanism of memory in this regard. But Mm -hmm. in my own experience, those memories that come up like that, sometimes they're random, but usually they lodged for a reason. Usually they lodged for a reason. There was something about that moment, that picture, that, that sight that I had that stuck with me. 
I was just going to ask, do you think that, because I noticed when Ian was talking about this, that he was emphasizing a kind of uh, passivity of Santiago. Um, when he's awake, he's trying with all of his might and all of his psychological energy is spent on trying to make himself dignified, cling to this sense of identity that he has. And when he goes to sleep, I, what I heard, Ian, I might be wrong about this, is that you were questioning how in charge he was when he was asleep, if, if he was more passive in that state. And then the lions came in. But it seems to me, mom, that you are implying that there's, there's an intentionality even when he's sleeping. His, his psychological mind is holding on to that dignity even in his sleep. Is that the conversation that we're having? Well, maybe not an intentionality like what I think you mean. Like he intentionally thinks of the lion and is asleep because of course we don't intentionally um, consciously think of things. Our subconscious mind works when we're sleeping and our dreams tend to express needs and fears and wants. And so I see the lions as an expression of that need. Sometimes we dream of things that we really admire. I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting that we're talking about the lions in two connections with how they, whether they realistic, re- realistically represent interior dialogue in human nature. And one of them is as the subject of dreams, and the other one is as the subject of memories. And those two things are different. And at yeah. the end, at the end, he's dreaming about a memory. So it's so it's 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 a combination of the two. So meta. I know it's very meta, but, <laughs> but here's the thing. When we're talking about a hipster before it was cool. (laughs) That's the truest thing you ever said. (laughs) (laughs) But if you think about it for for a minute, memories and dreams are alike in that they in that they they come unbidden. Uh, But but I but I think with respect to memories in particular, you can't really choose them. That they're not actually affected as much by the experience of the previous day or by what's been troubling you or by influences on you. I mean, I can think of a, a big long catalog of memories in my own head from childhood that are completely incongruous. Mm-hmm. I remember you know, sitting in my high chair, squishing peas with my hands. Why? Re- <laughs> what was Why it about are yours also baby-like, Dad? <laughs> Don't you you think can remember being that young? Your dad brings a plate, you smash some peas. Your life is weird. Well, I remember <laughs> one time you told me you ate a whole stick of butter. Is that real? <laughs> Ian claims to remember living in Virginia, and he was only nine I months old. I do not! <laughs> That's not the only time you've accused me of that on this podcast, and I did not say that. Ah, the smell of this place, I recall it. (laughs) How old were you when you moved from? You know what, Emily? You know what? (laughs) Things I can say that I won't on the air. (laughs) It was six weeks. He was six weeks old when we moved from Virginia Beach. But That's let me, I want to know this, Missy, because I, I, because I think your point about the thematic significance of the lions, I mean, it goes in line with the kind of stuff we always say in our general approach to literature, which is, look, intentionality is artistic self-consciousness is a, is a bedrock of literature. And, and what you're trying to, to say is that in the case of the lions, which maybe are, maybe it's difficult to interpret and understand, there is at least some sort of thematic significance that was intentional on Hemingway's part, right? Well, I think so. I mean, I think that the story was very thematic. And he didn't mean to say there's no theme in this story. What he meant to say is that don't read today in the newspapers and the critics into my story. It's a story. Read it like a story, for goodness sake. Okay. And then, and so I'm just trying to get my head around this. Ian, your perspective on, or the perspective that you bring us from this article is that it's less thematic than illustrative of how the human mind works, right? Yes, I think so. And I, to be fair to to the woman with whom we're conversing that is not here, 
Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what her comprehensive reading of the story would be. All she's talking about is what are the lions doing here? This is weird. Right. Why are these here? And and her interpretation of that is it sounds like a very Hemingway thing to do to make this character intimate by pulling in a random detail. And isn't it so like memory and so like human beings that we don't have control over what we think about when we're sleeping and stuff like that. And I don't think she's making a whole lot of points that are um, contestable, but I think the implications of the points she's making on the rest of the theme of the story really made me chew and, and think. And I've been taking her part because I'm the one who drug her here before the wolves, but I, in reality, am a wolf. I would agree. I would agree very much with what mom is saying and with what Emily was saying about the lions. I think that, um, that Hemingway, even if he set out in his mind to write himself a story that didn't have anything to do with anything, wherein all of the parts worked against one another, he couldn't pull it off because he can't, just like Santiago, he can't control what he is anymore than anybody else. What he is is a brain that looks at the world and sees stories in it. And to right. see a story is to see meaning. And they hang together, the stories that he spins, because he's they really, really do. good at it. They're gorgeous and, and absolutely inseparable from deep, deep, deep meaning. So I think the only way we have to land is on is on the, the lions mean something. But it, it would also be like a, a writer of his caliber to, to hide that meaning fairly deep, I think. I mean, you, you were making a point that he's very clear, and I'll have to chew on that. I think you're probably right. But the lion strikes me as an image that he wanted us to to be stuck with. Yeah. For it well, I could go with that. Bother us. But well, I don't think that being clear is necessarily uh, that you have to choose between being clear and being deep. And I think he's very deep mm-hmm. and also manages to have super clear sentence structure. I mean, you mentioned him being a hipster and he definitely eschews surplusage as Mark Twain would say <laughs> in a real hipster kind of way. You yeah, know what no, I mean? Yes. Adjectives are so yesterday for him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Beautiful. But that well that is all the discussion that I hoped to have about this article. Uh, yeah, that was good. phenomenal. <laughs> Don't you think oh. that she was just um she's an she's an artist herself. She's an author, yeah, she and is. probably what she's thinking about all the time is how to develop characters yes, that and she says strike that. a chord mm-hmm. and that are real. And yeah. so yeah. maybe her game here is not, if I can use the word game in when we're talking about lines, maybe her game here is not so much um, an interpretation of the old man in the sea uh, vis-a-vis the lions, but rather mm-hmm. just a, a conversation about how to create um, lifelike characters. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah, I think there's a lot to that. That's what I was trying to, to say that. a second ago. Yeah. I would be interested to talk more about the idea that you don't have control over your memories and what that means because the title of the article is something about like what it means to be human is encapsulated in that scene right so if we can't control our memories then what does that say about what it means to be a human creature Mm -hmm. the givenness of things that's what it means (laughs) what did you say ian i said the givenness of things everything about santiago's identity is received but that's a whole other thing. Or it could also be, and I don't disagree with you, I think that's true. Another thing to add to that um, is the idea that in our, even in our sleep, we're trying to make meaning. We mm. never let go of trying to make meaning and trying to, um, reaching for something that has some sort of value, you know, because ah, those that. lions to him are are at least dignity and courage and grace and you know what I mean. But we, mm-hmm. but we're also the other flip side of that coin is that is another aspect of of the human experience that's just as compelling. The thing we're trying to make meaning out of is 
a pile of disconnected impulses and shards of experience. And the incongruity of the lions points that up. I mean, that reminds me of the, of the protagonist in Notes for Underground by Dostoevsky, whose mind is a complete boneyard of <laughs> contradictory impulses and thoughts that come out of nowhere and his reactions to them and his desperate attempts to make some sort of sense out of what's going on in his head and his heart sort of is both, both sides of this coin as well. Uh, on the one hand, there's the disjointed elements of his experience and of the impulses that come into his mind. On the other hand, his attempt to find meaning in them. It also reminds me of what, the, what you were talking about, Missy, on a, on a recent episode of Bibliophiles when we were doing um, To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. The, mm-hmm. the effort to, to say, life, stand still. All of these disparate parts that are swirling around me, let me draw a line to connect them. Yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, Santiago's subconscious, even while asleep, is, is trying for some sort of meaning like that. Well, and is, is reaching for uh, that, that idea, Ian, that you had, that permanent thing that's present even when he's sleeping, the given thing, um, mm-hmm. being the dignity of man. Like he wants to, mm-hmm. he wants man in this meaningless universe to retain some sort of dignity. Dignity is what resonates. It's the thing he reaches for. It's. But here's the thing, and this is what I was talking about earlier. And this is not a comment about Obrecht and her comments at all. This is all Hemingway. I wonder if 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 what you just said is true. If Hemingway's project defeats itself just a little bit, because what he's always trying to say is your identity and your dignity in particular, I'm using dignity and identity sort of interchangeably, right? Mm -hmm. Your identity is something you achieve vis-a-vis your interaction with this cold, harsh, unforgiving world. Right. And um, in this particular story, he can't achieve, he can't achieve a thing. Right. He doesn't achieve anything. And to bring back around that image of his identity again, basically would imply that he was powerless from the beginning to affect that. Um, Although he does achieve something, actually. He does drag the carcass home. He does beat the fish off all the way, even though they're eating at it. He never gives up. And then he does untie the mast and carry it up the hill, even as he falls like Christ carrying his cross, right, to the crucifixion. He, he falls in that crucifix image and continues the struggle. You know? He continues to struggle, but he always a Hemingway hero always does it in the face of disaster and defeat and, and defeat. Despair. Defeat. Yeah, he's always defeated. But that is always the victory, the according to Henry to to Hemingway. The the continual fight, the never give up, the dignity. Yeah, hmm. it, yeah. it's pretty um, anemic from my perspective, but I think that's what Hemingway holds out. Mm-hmm. Mm. But such clear, direct sentences, though, right? Adjectives. So yesterday. <laughs> Never heard that before. That's a good one. Um, Ian, thank you for bringing this thank article. You guys. Yeah, that was really fun. And I really appreciate you guys' contributions. That's um, that's a lot to think on and chew on. And maybe the next time I go to teach the old man in the sea, I'll have a little bit more to say when some whippersnapper of a high school kid asks me about the lions. What about the lions? Yeah, that's great. I love it. Well, we'll adjourn this episode of Bibliophiles and go ahead and post it to the interwebs. Looking forward to our next episode already. In the meantime, swing by the website if you like, centerforlit.com, pelicansociety.com. Rate the podcast if you get the chance. Give us five stars and tell us how much you're enjoying it. And we will see you soon. Until we meet again, my friends, happy reading. Happy Happy reading. reading.
Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.